Excellency, the Consul General of Japan, the officers, the members of the association, thank you very much for inviting me and for giving me this opportunity to talk a little bit about our state, who we are, how we got here, and what we want to do going forward. And I hope how we can partner together since you're already all here uh, based on some interest. Tamil Nadu is, we think, because for whatever reason the government of India has not run its once in a ten year census. So we don't have accurate population count. But we think today it's between 76 and 80 million people. Because in 2011 the census showed us at 72 million people. Now, um, some states have very high birth rates and fertility rates. Since we are reaching about middle income status, our birth rates are down quite a bit. Not as low as Japan or Singapore, but low compared to the Indian um, average. So, if I had to take a best case estimate, I would say about 78 million people, about a $320 billion economy, at least when the rupee was about 76, 77, so maybe discounted a bit for being 83. Uh, per capita income, about 3,800, close to 4,000 US dollars. Uh, total fertility rate of about 1.6 births per woman. Average education, high school graduate and about 52% of our college age youth enroll in a degree program, either a three-year or a four-year or a professional degree program. This is quite unique. Uh, it gets more unique if I give you um, the human development and social development indicators. Uh, our infant mortality rate is probably half that of the northern states and about 20% lower than the national average. Our medical education and medical facilities are certainly the best in the country. We have four doctors for every thousand people. The Indian average is slightly over 1,500 people per doctor. Um, I can compare myself or the state of Tamil Nadu to poor states, but that's not a meaningful comparison. Uh, it's almost like uh, two different economic ecosystems. It's much more meaningful to compare it to a state like Gujarat. Uh, because as you know, in India, there are really only four large rich states in India. By GDP, it's uh, Maharashtra, then Tamil Nadu, then, depending on which year, probably Gujarat and Karnataka, or Karnataka and Gujarat. The per capita income in Gujarat is slightly higher than that in Tamil Nadu, maybe $100 per capita, out of a $3,000 base. But there are stark differences between Gujarat and Tamil Nadu. Uh, Gujarat has a few large industries, you know, in refining, in kind of automated processing, in diamond trading, 
and um, the, the Gini coefficient is much, much higher than it is in Tamil Nadu. But there is a more core social construct. In Tamil Nadu, about 85% of the girls at the age of high school are in school. In Gujarat, that number is less than 50%. So, actually, fundamentally different society, different levels of inclusion, different levels of participation. Um, and so, in that sense, we are a very unique state because we are a relatively high income, relatively high education, relatively high human development and social development, relatively equitable and therefore relatively high consumption state because the Gini coefficient is lower. The per capita consumption is much higher in Tamil Nadu than it is in any of the other large rich states, Maharashtra, Karnataka, Gujarat. That creates its own problems, at least historically it's created problems because we have, let's say, a lot more environmental impact, a lot more garbage collection, a lot more infrastructure stress because we are also the most urban state. More than 50% of Tamil Nadu now lives in urban areas and, uh, you know, it puts a lot of pressure, particularly in the newly developing urban areas. So, we're continuously expanding the city limits to try and bring these exurbs into the city and provide the same uniform quality of service. We didn't get here by accident. If I was to take a long perspective, um, back in 1916, there was a social justice movement started uh, in what was then the Madras Presidency under the British rule all the way from uh, Kanyakumari in the south till halfway into Orissa on the eastern coast and past Mangalore almost till Goa on the western coast was all run as one presidency, one state, excluding the princely states of Hyderabad and Cochin and uh, Travancore and, and the Arcot and all that. Uh, in those days, the first, um, the, the British tried multiple sets of reforms to prevent full independence because there was a lot of movement for independence. And so, as a first stage, they tried a set of reforms in the 1880s or 1890s called the Morley Mentor Reforms. These two names are always the Viceroy of India and the Secretary uh, in the UK government in charge of India, Secretary of State for India or Secretary of India. And it didn't quite satisfy the people. So, in the late 19 they started a second set of reforms called the Montague Chelmsford reforms. And under those, they held elections and created a bicameral legislature. One, all the main departments like revenue, home, and all that were left with the British and run administratively by the government under the Governor General. And then, what they thought was not core, which was education, uh, public works cooperation, all these were given to the Indian elected chamber, uh, which nominated their own government. But what that did was it allowed the Indian elected government to do huge social reform. So in the Madras presidency, in the first year of the elected government under Dayaki, the two-tier government, um, women were given the right to vote, women were given the right to stand in elections compulsory elementary education, irrespective of caste for all boys and girls, was legislated. And because there was a huge over-representation 
of the only community that really had access to education for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years before that. They brought in what was called the communal geo, which said that government jobs will be allocated in proportion to the population. If this community is 5%, you get 5% of the job. If that is 20, you get 20% of the job, so forth. And it was a consciously short-term inefficient or suboptimal decision because they wanted to create examples and leaders and uh, kind of, um, you know, uh, what can I say, those who could create coattails for others from their community to come into those jobs. Right? Why I say this is that effectively since 1921, we are now 101 years later, almost every party that has run the government of Tamil Nadu has adhered to those core values. Uh, from 1920 till about 21 till about 37, it was the Justice Party or some variant of it. 37 to, you know, 52 with some breaks in between because of the war, there was no election, no government. Um, it was run by some version of the Congress or some spin-off of the Congress. And then from 52 again, after independence, when Madras state was carved out, it was run by some version of the Congress from 52 to 67. And then from 67 till now, some party that calls itself Dravidian, whether it was the DMK or the ADMK, has effectively run the government since then. In that sense, our core values have not changed. Uh, whenever we are in debates in the assembly, it's very rarely about, I want to go left and you want to go right. The debates are, have I done more or have you done more or did you uh, kind of mess this up or did I mess this up? You know, these kinds of uh, relative value, relative credit uh, debates. I would say that is the primary reason, this hundred years of continuity is the primary reason that Tamil Nadu is in this unique position that it is today relative to almost any state in India. Having said that, um, the last probably eight to seven or eight or nine years have been quite difficult. Largely driven by political turmoil because the, the former chief minister of Tamil Nadu, uh, Ms. Jalta, was convicted of some corruption cases and uh, went to jail in 2014. And if you ever want to do a case study of what happens when the political leadership becomes a vacuum, Tamil Nadu is a classic case. Tamil Nadu was doing very well as a state, irrespective of whether the DMK or the ADMK was in power. In fact, the core fiscal reform of administration in India is an act called the FRBM Act that was passed in Parliament in 2003. It's a Fiscal Responsibility and Budget Management Act. This act put a lot of constraints on governments. It said that you had to keep the revenue account neutral, you had to keep the fiscal deficit within 3% of GDP or in the state's GSDP, you had to do two-year forward projections on all your accounts. You had to give every six months an interim update to the House, to the Parliament of what was happening with the revenues, etc. It was it brought a, a, a set of disciplinary constraints to the administration, which otherwise, as you know, politicians tend to be profligate. I mean, you just got to get re-elected this time. Most political people don't think two elections, three elections down. And so 
this act both in Delhi and then the union government has a way, though we claim we are a federal country, we are not quite a federal country, so the union government has a way of forcing things onto the states, sometimes for good, sometimes not so good reasons. For the good reason, they said you will not get full funding uh, from the union for certain schemes unless you pass an equivalent act to the FRBM Act. So in 2003, the government of Tamil Nadu passed an act called the FRA, the Financial Responsibility Act, which basically had the same conditions. And that was a remarkable turn of events because at that point, the debt to GDP of Tamil Nadu was about 28%. It was a government run by the ADMK when that act was passed. Uh, three years later, the DMK came to power. Five years after that, the ADMK came back to power. But across all governments from 2003 to 2014, the fiscal discipline that that act brought reduced the debt to GDP from 28% down to 16%, 17%. Because the debt was going down, the interest payments as a, as a percentage of revenue were going down. So interest payments went down from somewhere like 20, 21% down to 11% of revenues. So the act delivered what it was supposed to deliver as long as there was a political leadership in place that actually could run the government. Once the former chief minister went to uh, prison, then she came out and then her health was bad and then, you know, eventually she passed away. But right from 2014, the finances of the state uh, deteriorated quite rapidly. I mean, rapidly relative to where they were, not uncontrollably rapidly. But prior to the onset of the COVID pandemic, uh, Tamil Nadu had a debt-to-GDP ratio back up at 25-26% and the interest-to-revenue ratio back up at 18-19-20%. This was pre-COVID. So the lack of discipline, the lack of uh, political leadership started harming us in, in significant ways, starting with a leakage of revenue. At one point, the state used to earn about 10.5% of GSDP as its own revenues, yet another 4% as its share of the taxes from the, the union. There's a formula that gets set every five years. The richer you are, the less of your tax money you get back. It's a federal system. So at one point, Tamil Nadu used to be about 7% of the population, about 7% of the economy, and used to get about 7% of the taxes back that was not taken by the union, the pool that was shared to the states. Now uh, we are about 6% of the population, about 10.5-11% of the economy, of the national economy, and we get about 4% of the tax pool because we are getting richer and richer relative to the rest of the country. But in any event, uh, this lack of leadership um, started showing first in leakage and then no politician can cut spending as fast as revenue drops, if revenue drops that much. So, you know, we're in the election business. And so, as the revenue started dropping, um, some programs or the growth of some programs was cut, but the rest was funded by debt. And so, we started being, for the first time, a borrower for revenue deficits, not only for... So, between 2003 and 2014, broadly, the government of Tamil Nadu was revenue neutral. It only borrowed for capital investment. It only borrowed for the uh, fiscal deficit. From 14 till about 
the pandemic and then of course accelerating through the pandemic we became much much worse so we're back now when we took office last uh, may we're back to about 27% debt to gsdp still by global standards or by national standards not so bad and we're back to about 20% or so interest to revenue the remarkable thing is that once we came uh, we started kind of fixing things and at least so far our experience has been uh, you know very positive in the first year we came because we had to fulfill a lot of election promises plus we had the second wave of covid plus the third wave of covid none of which was planned for there was a shortage of oxygen we didn't have enough beds uh, altogether we ended up spending about 3 billion US dollars more than the budget had called for in february before we came to office the interim budget had called for and yet um once the final account for last year has come we've actually lowered the revenue deficit and therefore the fiscal deficit by about 16000 crores about 2 billion US dollars so we spent 3 billion more and we still brought the deficit down 2 billion year over year as a percentage of uh, gsdp the 2021 fiscal deficit was about 4.61% and this 2122 we brought it down to 3.38%. So it's a massive improvement in a very difficult year. The fact that we have not cut any muscle or bone but only cut waste is indicated by our growth in revenues this year. This year we have seen a greater than 50% growth in revenues as the bounce back from covid uh, gives us results. much more than the union government of india has seen and just to put that in perspective the government of india's fiscal deficit last year was almost 7% more than double our fiscal deficit so where are that's where we are now where do we want to go our chief minister has given a very clear indication that he wants us to aim for a 1 trillion economy by 2030 so if we are about 320 billion uh, really we got to grow about 14 to 15 percent. Now it's a bit, um, what do you say, difficult to set goals in U.S. dollars because I have no control of the exchange rate. Um, but assuming the exchange rate doesn't fly away much more than the delta in inflation, which is normally what you know Rudy Donbush's kind of interest rate parity theory should say, then we need to grow about 14 to 15 percent. in notional terms uh, that rate we achieved last year in spite of the pandemic and this we are going to probably exceed this year um, as we recover tamil nadu has a history of growing even in difficult times between 2006 and 2011 the previous time our party was in power uh, we had a real growth cagr over 5 years of 10.15% real so after adjusting for inflation uh we don't need to do nearly that much now if we can hit 8 or 8.5% percent real growth i don't see any way that inflation is going to be less than 6 6.5% to get there you know we need a lot of help but we got to start with ourselves so as far as the government of tamil nadu is concerned um i would say there's a three step priority the first is to bring our house in order to reduce the revenue deficit to zero to come in compliance with the fra we're well on our way uh, last year 
Yeah, we were we we brought it down to slightly under two percent revenue deficit. What had been three and a half from the most of the reduction. Now all of the reduction was only in the revenue deficit. This year we are on track to bring it down substantially again. And uh, though the projection calls for us to only reach revenue neutral in uh, 25, 26, I have committed that we'll get there in 24, 25. Uh, we might even get there next year if there's no recession. Right? So the first job is that we should keep our house in order. But we've got to do it in a way that gives us two kind of significant multiplier effects. And the first is on the revenue spending, we've got to first make sure the income doesn't leak. We've got to change a lot of policies, do a bit more enforcement, do a bit of structural improvements. And once we get those policies right, in our revenue spending, and this is true of all democracies, so I'm not saying that it's only unique to Tamil Nadu or in fact to India or to any party, but in all democracies what you find is that the few who have access to the years of government, who are organized, who are able to uh, lobby, these few subvert the, the kind of actions towards their benefit away from the many. And there's many ways of describing these from, you know, uh, I don't want to get into political trouble, so I won't, I won't say exactly. But the principle is very clear. Those who are better organized, those, in fact, I'll give a generic example. Uh, one of our uh, economic advisors, as you know, we appointed a team of five economic advisors, uh, two or three of them with a shared history like me from MIT. One of them is former uh, economic advisor of India and Reserve Bank Governor Raghuram Rajan. And uh, Raghu has, had written a book before he came to India called Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists, where he makes the point that the basis for capitalism is a level playing field and that everybody should have an uh, opportunity to uh, compete equally. But in fact, what happens is that if you have mega winners, like the tech companies or like the banks, then they get so rich and so powerful that they can subvert the democratic process through lobbying, through funding, through PACs and through, you know, super uh, agencies. And therefore, they make it harder for the competition and they consolidate their position using the leverage of government. If that's true in America, that's 100 times true in India. The rich are getting richer much, much faster. Uh, you know, not as egalitarian a society like Japan. So, in our revenue spending, uh, at least in this government, my ambition is very clear. We want to spend on the many. We want to get this money to the bottom of the pyramid. We want to have more data so that we know who's getting what. We want to do more direct transfers. We want to avoid the hijacking of these processes by the few, by the associations, by the people who have access to power. And if we do that, we think uh, if we can execute, we can get really good results. I just take a side uh, comment here, or, or a, a tangent here. I was in Delhi for some think tank seminar a few weeks ago, and there was a professor from Columbia University, a historian called Adam Tooze, and he gave a lecture about crises and how government should spend out of crises in the old Keynesian kind of approach to economics. And he gave us a quote from Keynes that uh, 
I had not heard before. And basically, Keynes had said in some context, anything we can actually do, we can afford. Right? And it was a very profound statement. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. Anyway, I went and did some research. Uh, it was the first time I'd heard it. And it turns out he was saying that in the depth of the Second World War, it was a 1942 interview with the BBC, and they were asking him, can we afford to do this, and can we get uh, you know subsidies to get people into jobs and all that. And he made this point, says anything, he says, relative to our forefathers, relative to 50 years ago, relative to pre-industrial revolution, we are so much richer country, and so we shouldn't think short term, we shouldn't think about this year's budget and so forth. We should think that if we can actually achieve the outcome that we intend, then we can afford to do it because that outcome will definitely give you the multiplier effect and the returns and the growth in revenue and taxes and all these things. And that's profoundly true. In my understanding now, that's profoundly true. If we can actually execute what we intend without getting it hijacked, without rent-seeking, without corruption, without all those problems, then certainly money is not the barrier. Right? Even for a state like Tamil Nadu, for example, last year, we came in well under the borrowing limit. Uh, if we were able to bring the, uh, the fiscal deficit down 1.23% in a difficult year, I have no doubt that we'll do equally well or better this year. So it's no longer a question of money. Now it's a question of actual execution. Can you actually execute your intent and achieve the objective despite all the interferences and uh, barriers in the way? Why that's important is that if we do our job right, we're going to have to greatly increase our capital spending. Because if I went from 3% revenue deficit down to 0% revenue deficit in 3 or 4 years, that means 100% of my borrowing limit is going to be used for capital investment. And at some level, if you're a developing economy, these borrowing limits are not just ceilings on debt, they should also be flows on debt. Why is that? Because if investment drives growth, the basic of, you know, concept of economics, that investment drives growth, then surely the cheapest borrowing is by the government relative to private enterprise. The highest likelihood of success, if done right, is the government because there's nobody uh, trying to rent-seek from the government. There's no corruption of the government upon itself. And the kinds of projects that the government will do are high multiplier effect projects. We'll do roads and ports and water systems and hospitals and airports. And these will give high multiplier effects because we are not as worried about the return directly to us. We'll get it indirectly through companies coming, setting up through, you know, greenfield, brownfield projects, etc. So what's going to happen to us in between 2020-21 where we spent probably four or five billion dollars in capital expenditure U.S.? If we get our fisc in order, we're going to end up spending closer to 20 billion in two years. Now that's a huge shock to the system, right? Now, we don't have any track record of being able to do 20 billion dollars a year of capital expenditures and actually executing it. We don't have the contractors, we don't have the engineering firms, we don't have the the you know. Um, whatever you call those uh, aggregators, the managers. We don't have any of these capabilities. So in a nice way, it's going to force us to do what we would have prioritized to do if it was within my control anyway, which is to do a lot more 
private public partnership and bring in people with the expertise that we simply don't have, the execution expertise that we simply don't have. And to focus on, you know, longer term, higher return projects. For example, earlier today I was in a uh, seminar at the British Consulate on offshore wind. And, uh, you know, if India is going to get to carbon neutral by 2070, then Tamil Nadu, which is the number one state for renewable energy already today, over 35% renewable, we need to get there by 2050. And if we need to get there by 2050, there's a whole bunch of capital investments we need to do to facilitate that, because evacuating power from offshore wind and all is not cheap or not easy. So I think there's a natural fit that a government like us that is going to end up doing a lot more capital spending without the execution capability now wants partners who will come and not only give us leverage, uh, but also give us the expertise and give us the technology and the, and the kind of result-oriented outcome that often governments are not able to bring by themselves. So in that sense, I would say that this is a very exciting time uh, for us to work with all of you as uh, Japanese companies. In uh, some previous discussions, I've noted that as far back as the late 60s, um, you know, many in our Dravidian movement used to hold up Japan as an example and say that if within 20 years of the war, which was so devastating, if Japan could become a manufacturing powerhouse and, uh, you know, not just a self-reliant country, but do aid to other countries in 20 years, then it speaks of the work ethic, the discipline, the pursuit of perfection, and that that should be an example for the rest of us uh, to follow. But here we are, 50 years later, and in some sense, our paths have diverged very dramatically. Uh, Japan is an aging country with a relatively shrinking workforce, a lot of assets, a lot of need for duration investment, a global perspective, therefore, and a big global investor in many ways, including many large banks that are, um, you know, global operators or, or systemically important in the global economy. And India, on the other hand, um, is the opposite of all that. Large population, inadequate capital, inadequate development. Of course, India is, as the Economist magazine put it, a uh, continent masquerading as a country. So actually, you know, both by population size and by disparity between the states in so many dimensions, uh, we are more like, uh, you know, a European Union than we are just one country. So in that sense, I would say, as good as the fit between Japan and India may be, the fit between Japan and Tamil Nadu is even better. And that's, I think, indicated by the number of companies that are here relative to um, in other parts of India. And we certainly value the relationship very much. Uh, we are excited to have so many of you here. Back in uh, my earlier days when I was in the banking industry, um, both in the American industry and then more in the commercial banking industry. I've had some interactions um, and I know in Chennai, in my old bank, we set up a desk uh, in those days just to cover the Japanese clients before all the big three had branches in Chennai. 
but I'm happy to see that all of you are here now. I think uh, this is the right inflection point where we can accelerate uh, the, the bilateral investment, uh, skilling, um, talent movement and uh, trade. And uh, I think with that, on that positive note, I will uh, end my comments and thank you again for the chance to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.